So now that the uh, first panel has adequately filled us in on the right and wrong of the Halbig case and whether or not the court's going to take it and what's going to happen with it, we're going to look at, in this panel, what it would mean if Halbig succeeded. Um, my name is Laurie Montgomery. I'm also a reporter at the Washington Post, like my colleague Bob Barnes. My connection with this subject is I covered the healthcare law. And to be honest with you, the chaos of those days makes it seem a little crazy that we're sitting here parsing what they meant, <laughs> because what they meant was to get it passed by all means necessary. Um, our speakers on the second panel are going to start off with Robert Leshevsky. He's president of Health Policy and Strategy Associates. Bob had 20 years of experience in the insurance industry, serving as a chief operating officer for nine of those years before beginning his business in 1992. He has participated extensively in the nation's healthcare debate and has been a regular contributor on the issue for a number of national television and radio networks, as well as major newspapers and trade journals. His marketplace practice concentrates on how employers, providers, health insurance companies, HMOs, and Blue Cross plans come to grips with market and policy change. Bob will discuss the potential economic impacts of the Halbig case on the nation's insurance markets. Next up will be Len Nichols, director of the Center for Health Policy Research and Ethics and a professor of health policy at George Mason University. He's been intimately involved in health reform debates, policy development, and communication with the media and policymakers for over 20 years. Since serving as senior advisor for health policy at the Office of Management and Budget in the Clinton administration. Since that time, he has testified frequently before Congress and state legislatures. Len has been a principal research associate at the Urban Institute, vice president of the Center for Studying Health System Change, and director of the Health Policy Program at the New America Foundation. As he has come to focus his research more on payment and delivery reform, Len has been an advisor to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation at CMS and is now the principal investigator on a five-year evaluation of Care First patient-centered medical home program and of a three-year Robert Wood Johnson Foundation project testing how payment reforms might be used to reduce health disparities. Len is going to talk about the implications of a Halbig victory for policymakers as well as for average Americans. Third would be Tom Miller. He's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies healthcare policy, including regulatory barriers to choice and competition, healthcare cost factors, and market-based alternatives to the Affordable Care Act. A former senior health economist for the Joint Economic Committee in Congress, Miller was previously a trial attorney, a journalist, a sports broadcaster. He once thought about exploring stand-up comedy as well, but soon realized that describing government health policy drew more laughs. <laughs> he is the co-author of the bestseller, Why Obamacare is Wrong for America, and author of When Obamacare Fails, the playbook for market-based reform. Tom is going to focus on how Congress and state legislatures might respond to a Halbig victory. Finally, Michael Cannon has been been described by my publication as an influential, influential healthcare wonk at the Libertarian Cato Institute, where he is the director of health policy studies. Along with Jonathan Adler, he wrote the leading scholarly treatment of the issues before us today, taxation without representation, the illegal IRS rule to expand tax credits under the PPACA, published in Health Matrix Journal of Law Medicine. 
This means, of course, that he has no opinion on how the courts should rule in this case. <laughs> His presentation will focus on the dueling narratives of the Halbig case. Are the plaintiffs merely being obstructionist and nitpicky, or is the administration committing a staggering violation of law? So we're going to start out with Bob. Thanks, Laurie. <clears throat> Thanks, Laurie. It's great to be here, and thank you, Michael, for inviting me. Um, my job today is to talk about the what if. What if Halbig is affirmed, and what impact would that have on the marketplace? <clears throat> and to cut to the chase, it would be devastating, catastrophic. You know, we talk about the nuclear option sometimes in public policy, but I don't think any of us have ever seen the nuclear option. Halbig is the nuclear option for the individual health insurance market in these 36 states. In the other states where the states are running the exchanges, there wouldn't be a direct impact but the impact in these 36 states would be just devastating. 86% of those enrolled are on subsidy, and the people who are on subsidy are generally low-income people. And what would, what would happen is the minute people lost their subsidies, presumably the minute the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Helbig, the next month there are no subsidies. And so these people simply would not be able to afford, by and large, to continue their health insurance because th this group is so dis disproportionately low-income. Obamacare works pretty well for people that are at low-income levels. Uh, they, they get about all their premium paid. Their deductibles and co-pays are cut dramatically. And as a result, Obamacare has disproportionately enrolled people who are lower income. People who are working class or middle class, it's not working as smoothly. The Obamacare has only enrolled about one out of every three subsidy-eligible people. And for a program to work like this, the rule of thumb in the insurance markets is that you've got to get about 75% of the people enrolled. So Obamacare has, is far from having cleared the tower. And in the, right in the middle of this three-year open enrollment, if the courts were to rule uh, and to affirm Helbig, uh, you would take a market that is not able to stand on its own right now and, and devastate it even from that point, much less not let it get to where it needs to be. Now, it's important to understand that in the states that are running their exchanges, they may have a shot at making this sustainable. But that would clearly not be the case in these 36 states. Um, now, another factor here is that the Affordable Care Act's reinsurance provisions for the insurance companies pretty much picks up order of magnitude 80 to 90% of their losses. It's a very complex system. I can't give you the exact number. It depends on a number of, of things. But 80 to 90% of an insurance company's losses are sustained by the taxpayer, by the federal government, in 2014, 2015, and 2016. So if a Helbig ruling were to come down during this period, there wouldn't be immediate devastation for the insurance companies because of that. Now, in, 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 in May, the administration claimed 5.4 million enrollments uh, in the federal exchanges, 86% uh, subsidy eligible. Based upon the adjustment to 7.3 million that they came up with a few weeks ago, We've got close to 4 million people. Uh, we'll have about 4 million people at year end in the exchanges under subsidy. Uh, the insurance companies are telling me that the enrollment is melting at a rate of about 3% a month, which is much more than we see in the normal marketplace. In the normal marketplace, you'd expect the people coming on to about offset the people leaving. That's not the case in Obamacare. It's been shrinking. <clears throat> but then, of course, we're going to have the 2015 enrollments. We don't know what that's going to be. The Congressional Budget Office has said that uh, Obamacare will be at 13 million people uh, at the end of 2015. They're at about 6.5 million now, or will be at year end with, with the, the melting of the enrollment. So the Obama administration, 
has before it the task of about doubling the number of people covered in the insurance exchanges by the end of the 2015 enrollment to stay on the CBO estimate track. By the way, and that's, that's probably a pretty good track for it being sustainable. I think that Obamacare has got to have about 15 million people in the exchanges for this first to be confident that this will be sustainable, and they're at about 6.5 million now. Now, we don't know exactly what the income breakdown of people is in Obamacare, and we don't have that data, but the administration a few months ago told us that the average subsidy people receiving was very high. And so if the average subsidy they're receiving or the net premium they're paying is very low, that tells you right there the bias is clearly toward low-income people who need these subsidies, and if they don't get these subsidies, wouldn't be able to continue. So you would, you would almost certainly have dramatic disenrollment for the insurance plans at the moment the subsidies ceased, uh, but, not, uh, but wouldn't immediately impact negatively the insurance companies because of the reinsurance provisions. And you might recall that the Obama administration took the cap off the reinsurance provisions uh, just a few months ago, a another controversial move that might be subject to some court tests, but they took the cap off. So basically, the insurance companies have an open-ended uh, 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 subsidy here. The Affordable Care Act's risk pro program comes in three parts. Uh, a revenue-neutral risk adjustment system that doesn't mean much in terms of, of this issue, but a claim reinsurance program and then a risk corridor program that, sus that sustains the losses on behalf of the insurance companies. Uh, every, any claim in 2015, every claim between $70,000 and $250,000 is completely reinsured by the federal government. The carrier is on the hook for the first $70,000. Now, the fallback uh, that comes, the layer that comes after that is the catch-all. And that, it's, it's a bit complicated, but what it says is after we've sustained all of the high claim costs uh, the government has on behalf of the insurance companies, we'll make sure that your medical loss ratio doesn't exceed a certain point. And again, it's very complicated. But the bottom line is, it'll, it'll, uh, if, if the claims losses are really bad, uh, this provision alone will pick up 75, about 75% of any losses the insurance company sustains after the federal government picks up uh, the, the claims between 70 and 250,000. So when you net all these things together, the reinsurance provisions are probably going to cover 80 to 90% of the losses for the insurance companies. For a publicly traded, big publicly traded company or a big Blue Cross plan, this means any losses that they would sustain would be really minor and fairly immaterial. Uh, but you've got a number of Obamacare co-ops out there that uh, just got started uh, under Obamacare. Uh, in Iowa, Nebraska, and Maine, and Montana, uh, indiv an individual co-op has about 50% of market share in each of these states. Uh, they, would, they would be protected by the reinsurance provisions as well. But the problem is they'd lose most of their enrollment. And any, business, any insurance business is, is challenged by two things. One, having too many claims. The other is not having enough people covered to cover your expenses. If these people were, if these co-ops were to lose the subsidized population from their business, they would not be able to sustain themselves because of the expense problems they would run into. They would just, they would simply lose their business. And it wouldn't matter that the government was reinsuring their, uh, their, uh, their medical loss ratio problem. They'd have terrific expense problems and probably would go down almost immediately. Uh, the, the, these co-ops have no other source of capital, only the seed money the federal government gave them. They wouldn't even be able to uh, have an insurance company come in and take them over because the co-op rules say an insurance company can't run the co-op. So they would be really in a, in a tough spot. 
So what we would have is almost immediately the market, the market imploding. Uh, as soon as those, those subsidies end, the people would need to find that the people would not be able to pay their premium. Uh, how many people would that be? Well, I took the 7.3 million the administration talked about the other day, adjusted for 86 percent, looked at what the, what the federal government said had enrolled in each of these exchanges, and here's some of the states. The states with the asterisk are Medicaid expansion states. And I noted that because it would seem to me they would be most likely to want to try to continue state exchanges. They accepted the Medicaid expansion. But the, there would be an enormous political imperative here uh, for the states to have to do something. Uh, and and uh, the insurance companies would be waiting to see what the states would do. Uh, because you, you'd have uh, 283,000 people in North Carolina immediately lose their subsidies. The vast majority of those would have to drop their coverage. In Florida, 895,000 people would immediately lose their subsidies. And this is based on 2014 enrollment. If they double the enrollment in 2015, that could be something approaching 2 million people in Florida or 600,000 people in North Carolina, depending on how many people they enroll in, in 2015. Uh, so it's, it's a huge problem. Texas, 580,000. could be a million in, in, uh, in 2015 if the Obama administration stays on the CBO track for enrollment. That would be an enormous political issue. Uh, and what the carriers would be doing is they'd be sitting there saying, all right, what are these states going to do? If uh, you would, you would uh, if, if the hell big ruling came down, it would likely be mid-year because the court tends to make its big, its big rulings uh, just before the July break. So we would be looking at the, the rest of the calendar year. The insurance companies are committed to be in the exchanges for that calendar year. There's a provision in the new uh, health plan agreement that says the carrier can get out if the subsidies go away, but only subject to state and federal law. Uh, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act in 1996 is still operative, and it says that a carrier can't cancel individuals. It can only cancel a class of business. Well, we only have one class of business today. That's the Obamacare business and the exchanges. The silver gold plans, for example, that's the class of business. So you can't cancel only the people who lose subsidies. If the insurance company wants to get out, it's got to cancel everybody. And if it cancels all of its individual business in that market, HIPAA says that uh, they, they can't come back into the market for five years. So we've got a hell of a dilemma here. The carrier is looking at the market falling apart. They're subsidized to the end of the year uh, with, with the reinsurance provisions. They're not going to take a huge loss, but the market is, is just melted on them. It's further complicated by the fact that under the Affordable Care Act, uh, an insurance company can't cancel someone until they haven't paid their premium for, nine, for three months, for three months, 90 days. Traditionally, you know, you, you don't pay your insurance premium, you're canceled at the end of the month. Affordable Care Act says they have to keep them for 90 days. So it's just a real mess here. My sense is that most of the carriers would probably stay in the market for that calendar year, say 2015. They'd stay in the market for another six months, uh, and they'd, they'd fall back on the reinsurance provisions, and they'd look to see what the state's going to do. If it looks like the state is going to enact a state exchange, they'll probably, they'll probably gut it out. If it doesn't look like the state's going to do the exchange, then they're likely to get out, uh, and uh, they may have to get out of the entire market. This would impact the non-exchange market as well, because if this thing falls apart, the non-exchange market, the off-exchange market, is as unviable as the exchange market. So can the states just simply uh, move to uh, create a state exchange? 
Tim Jost wrote a piece in, in Health Affairs uh, recently, when, and he, he pretty much pointed out that for a state to immediately create a state exchange is not a simple matter. You got the political problem, of course, with the Texas legislature vote to do that. But if the Texas legislature voted to do that, it would likely take many months, many months to set up a state exchange as simply as creating a set of state exchange and then uh, contracting with the federal government as the vendor to continue doing the exchange on their behalf. That would be the simplest way to do it. But that would take at least many months to do. So what we would have is really a sobering situation here. To say that this was a, a, a catastrophe, to say that it, uh, in terms of the insurance markets, does not, under, does not understate it. It would be an extraordinary mess in terms of the insurance markets imploding, which would create one hell of a political problem uh, for, this, for the governors and the legislatures in each of these states. And I think the debate would then quickly move on to who broke it, because, folks, it would be broken in spades. Thanks. Thanks very much for that cheery assessment. Yeah. And now here's... Can I go home? <laughs> here's Len. All right. If the wrong people win in court, what the hell's going to happen? Well, first of all, I think it's worth taking at least three minutes and just assessing um, how's the ACA doing already because that's going to play into how this post-Hellbig uh, uh, conversation goes. It seems to me you need to judge the ACA on four metrics, coverage, cost, growth, and there are three dimensions to cost growth. It's both national health spending per capita, it's federal spending, and it's household spending. And then, of course, the things people in the health system really care about, quality and health. On coverage, I think you've got to say, uh, although shockingly, given the way the rollout of the website went down, um, the success in enrolling people is somewhat amazing. Roughly a third of the uninsured had been covered. I agree with Bob completely. The real test is what happens in 2015 when, think about it, the people who signed up the first year are probably the people who knew they had a health condition. So the task of persuading those to sign up the second year is much higher, and the same subsidies are there, so why didn't they come before? It's going to be kind of amazing if they get as many people. But it's also important to remember that this one-third reduction in uninsured occurred despite the fact that half the states did not expand Medicaid as they could have. And so it's a non-trivial uh, success. Cost growth is coming down. Careful people know it started coming down before the Affordable Care Act, so the Affordable Care Act cannot claim most of the responsibility here. But I do think you could say, and what's kind of interesting, and I think Bob knows this, if you go out in the healthcare system and talk to the people running it, they have focused like a laser beam on cost growth reduction in a way they have not before. And it has been that focus partly because of the payment reforms engendered by the Affordable Care Act and picked up and amplified by the private sector that you see those last four years of more or less constant per capita health care cost growth rate way below historical norms. The stability of that growth rate is really what we're talking about here, and that's the success people hope to hang on to. In some ways, uh, what matters is, of course, what, what's going on in Washington. This is CBO's forecast for total health spending by the federal government in 2020. And, you, and, the, and each bar is a different time when the forecast was made. The first bar is just before the law was passed or signed. And that basically is just Medicare and base Medicaid or Medicaid before the ACA. 
The second bar is the forecast of spending post-ACA, but pre-Roberts. So they assumed Medicaid would be full speed and all that stuff. And they said by 2020, we'd be spending, you know, a couple hundred million more, hundred billion more than we are than we expected to before baseline. But the amazing thing is April 2014 baseline. Okay, what that shows you is that even taking into account the enrollment expansions that, that CBO expects by 2020, the total federal spend will be less than it was projected to be before the ACA passed. That's what you call paying for yourself by carving out space in cost-cost reduction over time, which is why most analysts are pretty optimistic about that. Now, the thing that really matters, of course, is what, is, what a household's pay. And what we have here is an incomplete, but as yet all we've got picture of how premiums are changing in 2015. Now, Bob was too kind to say in 2014, basically health plans had to make a fairly uneducated guess about the risk pools they were gonna get. They had to make these guesses based upon incomplete knowledge of what the uninsured were like. We know what they're like from surveys, but we don't really know which ones are going to show up. The expectation is, of course, the sicker ones will show up. So the 2014 premiums were probably low, given all that backdoor coverage, uh, uh, risk coverage by the federal government uh, on, a, on a whim. I'm not a whim, but on an optimistic perspective. 2015 is a premium based much more on who you really got on what the experience actually is. Experience is admittedly short, but nevertheless, way better than they had the year before. Therefore, the premium movement in 2015 is actually a better indication of how insurers view this market stability than the level it was in 2014. And that's why the um, average premium change between 2014 and 2015 being negative 0.8% is so amazing. Yes, there's variability. Nashville has a positive 8.7 and Denver has a negative 15. But the point is, on average, the second lowest cost silver, which is the most important premium because that's the one to which the subsidies are pegged, the second lowest cost silver is actually stable or going down on average across the country. That's kind of amazing. So what about quality? Well, most of you know if you know the quality world, it, uh, it really moves in, in, like a glacier. And what this shows you is the percentage of a percentage of recommended care that adults get across the country. And, and some researchers from RAND got a lot of attention back in the mid-2000s when they reported that Americans only get what they should get about 67% of the time. And we're now up to 69, so that's pretty impressive. Uh, but that all occurred before the Affordable Care Act. My point is quality moves very slowly. You cannot claim quality's been improved, although if you do your PowerPoint correctly, you could do this. Because what you have here is, the statistic that has been focused on the most, and that is readmission percentages in the Medicare program, you may have known that 19% of Medicare beneficiaries admitted for a given problem were readmitted for the same problem within 30 days. 19%, okay? And that's gone all the way down to 18.4 and then 18. Now, again, you can make this look good and you can feel good about yourself, but it's not really that impressive. What I'm worried about is that there are fines built into the ACA for not doing well on readmissions. With all the attention readmissions have gotten, the fact that the number of hospitals being fined is going up, not good news that this is spreading very widely. So quality, not, not so good. 
What really matters, of course, is health, and there's 10,000 ways I could show you this, but I only have 12 minutes. So this is Healthy People to 2020, the metrics by which they judge the health of the population. And it basically shows that 10, 10 uh, measures um, are improving, eight are stuck, and, you know, so forth. So we're basically not moving very fast. What's getting worse is kind of depressing. It's suicide and adolescent depression and visits to dentist increasingly Oral access is a problem. But what's not moving is what bothers me the most because what's not moving is obesity. What's not moving is chronic conditions. And if that's what we got to move in, everything should be focused on that. So as a professor, I have to give a score. And the score is, on average, coverage, I give it a B plus. Actually, it's an A for performance, but a B plus because the rollout was so bad, it made people doubt that government could organize a two-car parade. I understand this building. There's never been any doubt. But anyway, the point is, um, there are uh, B plus is what I would give it. And the question will be how much expansion is there in 2015 cost? I would say, again, better than expected. So I give it a B. But the real question is how are out of pocket payments changing over time? A lot of these people with those low incomes or slightly above the subsidy level are quite worried about the deductibles they're paying. How are premiums going to move going forward? Quality, they haven't moved much. Health hadn't moved at all. Overall, B, B minus, which is not bad for a law that some people think is the end of civilization, but it is where we are. And the point is, how much will it spread? How deep will these payment reforms last? Because at the end of the day, if we don't make payment reform work, everything else is commentary. I say all this simply to say, this is how it's doing. It's a B minus out of the box. The tower has not been cleared, but it's, it's not on the ground either. So the question is, why would you blow this up? So what if the wrong arguments prevail? Well, this is the most important map. You're going to see lots of maps in the world, but this is the most important map because it summarizes everything you need to know, okay? The color scheme is, if it's green, it's a state that has both a state exchange and expanded Medicaid. If it's gray, and only Idaho is gray, it's a state that has an exchange but did not expand Medicaid just to prove they're different. The orange are states that basically have a federal marketplace or a, or a, or a partnership marketplace, but did, but did expand Medicaid. And the blue, of course, is hell no, we won't go. Okay, the blue is nothing across the board. Although, as Bob pointed out, almost a million people in Florida, a blue state, has signed up for the exchange, and 600,000 almost in Texas signed up for an exchange, even though their politicians were fairly hostile. So the point is, what's going to happen if the decision is made in a certain way, is going to vary a lot by these states. Remember the colors. Green is everything. Blue is nothing. Stuff in between. Green's going to be fine. Green's going to be fine because they have an exchange. They've done Medicaid. They're going to move along. The gray state will be fine enough. Just leave them alone. They're, they're nicer. They're happier that way. The problem is half the yellow states, Arkansas, Pennsylvania, I- Iowa, probably Ohio, they're trying to link Medicaid and the exchange in a fundamental way. In fact, their expansion of Medicaid is through the exchange, through the marketplace. Well, you take this federal subsidy away, blows up everything. All right, and then the blue states, of course, will get to live their politicians' dream of this libertarian paradise of never taking a federal dime. And, and, you know, I wish them good luck. So the point is simply this. The states where expansion has occurred in a serious way, those are the states whose hospitals are happier 
These are reports by for-profit hospital systems. The negative bar is the reduction in uh, self-pay admissions, okay? The reduction in uncompensated care admissions. The reduction in people who could not pay. The red bar is increase in Medicaid or payment, paying admissions. Obviously, these things are correlated, but not perfectly. And the point is, the hospitals where expansion has occurred are happy. The hospitals where expansion has not occurred and where the implosion would occur are not happy. All right? And so I want to show you a map from 1965. This is when Medicaid was created. Some of you know Medicaid was tacked onto Medicare at the very end. Wilbur Mills, literally at midnight, tacked it on there. It passed in July. The program started in January of 66. Okay? I can assure you they did not have Medicare regulations, Medicaid regulations, in that second half of 65. The first year of Medicaid, they basically said, whatever you're doing, we'll, take, we'll cover half. Whatever you're doing for the poor, we'll cover half. 26 states took it up, exactly the same number that expanded Medicaid this time. Okay? What this color-coded map tells you is what year states decided to create Medicaid. Dark blue is the first year. Light blue is the second year. That sort of uh, fluorescent blue, Virginia, Tennessee, Colorado, that was the fourth year. Deep South, five years in. And my point is this. Over time, the hospitals and the healthcare system, where coverage expansion happens, persuaded those who were ideologically, philosophically, and arguably racially opposed to creating the Medicaid program in the first place. They finally came around. Why? Because their health care systems are held a lot stronger with it. So why would you be mean to this person? This person is the, she calls herself in the New York Times, the reason this law was passed. Working at a, at a hair cuttery, you know, part-time, the Affordable Care Act gave her a way to get health insurance, cut her hours back, go to college, improve her life. Okay, and I submit to you, this is the deal. Okay, these this is the price of insurance, everything but Medicare. Okay, across our income spectrum. The left hand corner of the origin is where Medicaid was before the Affordable Care Act. You recall, Medicaid covered exactly half of our poverty population half, not all, half. Then on the right hand side, where you get high income people, you get a tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance. That's where we all live. That is to say, our subsidy is proportional to our marginal tax rate. Tax rates go up as your income goes up. So the biggest subsidy we give is for Bill Gates. The people in the middle, Y-A-O-Y-O, -O, you are on your own. They're the only ones paying retail. They're the only ones paying full price for health insurance in this country. The Affordable Care Act is all about giving those people first an extension to Medicaid and second sliding scale subsidies up to the ESI world. Why would you want to turn 30 million people into opponents of your political position? Thank you very much. Okay, Tom, I guess you can answer that question. Because I have to see how I get myself back to you. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to going ahead. Let's see if that'll work. Oh, there we are. Okay, We're a little lower here. 
Um, first, a couple. Uh, good to be back at Cato uh, again. We're above ground, unlike when I used to work here uh, in the auditorium below, uh, for out of the bowels. Uh, a couple of uh, quick acknowledgments and uh, disclaimers. I always like to thank the Obama administration for making my work necessary. Uh, and uh, I acknowledge that I once uh, I got involved in the early launch of these uh, lawsuits, but it was just because I was a few credits short of continuing legal education for the George Bar. Um, Defenders of the IRS rule uh, and, and opponents of the Halbig King uh, legal challenges would have us believe that uh, unthinkable, uh, unbearable disasters will occur if the federal exchange tax credits are overturned as illegal. Uh, you can almost uh, smell the uh, napalm in the morning uh, coming down. Uh, but I would say, in fact, it's apocalypse not. Uh, now, one of the scenarios would depict that after a Supreme Court ruling uh, affirming the original D.C. Circuit Court's uh, original opinion that we'll have a, a barren, uh, devastated scene similar to the one in the highest rated TV film ever. Uh, or there might be some alternative scenarios. Uh, in this case, you have to fill in your own captions. Uh, this could be the, uh, the millions left without any health insurance uh, or health care treatment. Or on the alternative, it could be the potential second wave of enrollees for the next open enrollment. Um, or it could be Republican legislators on Capitol Hill and the states about to reap the, uh, the future consequences of what they had wished for. Um, we also have the fake distress calls of the health insurance industry, which once upon a time uh, seemed to worry about being tied to the ACA's regulatory railroad tracks, uh, but soon adjusted Stockholm Syndrome style and developed a bit of a taste for being tied up. Uh, this scenario would uh, uh, suggest that the Republicans rushing in to help, in fact, are being entangled in a deeper trap that they couldn't anticipate. Uh, now, in our bipolar uh, political world, um, one side or another is supposed to be at the end of the rope. The question is, what does that rope really look like? Uh, could it be a slipknot? where if you pull loose on the tax subsidies and the federal exchanges, you begin to unravel the rest of the Affordable Care Act uh, quite quickly. In the alternative, maybe it's a noose knot, uh, which would uh, mean that upsetting the, uh, the uh, coverage subsidies uh, and then upsetting the interests uh, benefiting from them uh, would kill off the political future of ACA opponents. Okay, I've saved a few minutes for substance, just a little. Uh, and... Um, I'll follow the primary rule of uh, public policy predictions, which is don't include any specific numbers or a concrete date. Um, what are the short-term effects if the Halbig King uh, plaintiffs win? Uh, the pluses from the viewpoints of those who are bringing the challenges is going to mean fewer mandates. Uh, you're going to see the end of the employer mandate. It's not coming back. It's already on, on weak status as it is, and a, uh, a great weakening of the individual mandate. Also, a loosening of the boundary lines of uh, essential health benefits. Uh, what are the range of actuarially approved uh, policies that might be out there in the marketplace? More state control, uh, less uh, intensive or detailed federal requirements. I'd be happy to have anything uh, being done by the states at a certain point. Uh, but 
in a more, in a positive sense, a more two-sided renegotiation of what once was in a world that uh, doesn't exist anymore and has never been politically sustainable or economically viable. Uh, now, in that sense, it's also, though, a bit of mutually assured accountability. Neither side would be able to walk away and hold out for their full set of preferences. Uh, we would move on to a, uh, a more grudging but sustainable accommodation of the conflicting views that we need. We do it differently in a form of disruptive renovation of a health policy world that could actually begin to work more than it currently does. Um, the short-term effects, if the uh, plaintiffs win, uh, on the negative side, uh, a, lot, a, a good bit of disruption. Uh, one of the disruptions, of course, would be that the prices would become more transparent. Uh, you'd find out what things actually cost as opposed to how they've been camouflaged. And, in the short term, uh, the disruptors would uh, be a bit of a blame magnet. Uh, we'd have some political panic attacks. Uh, you know, the phrase is often used in football, flipping the field. Uh, there'd be a bit of a flipping of the field between the present and the future, as opposed to what we just experienced a year ago. It used to be that you could see all the upfront burdens and hassles of what was supposed to eventually arrive as the benefits of the Affordable Care Act expansion, and everybody saw all the hassles up front. And that was a difficult world to be in. Now it'd be a reversal in the sense of saying, well, this will eventually be a better world once we work our way through it post-disruption. But in the meantime, you can have some identifiable folks saying, well, I've lost what I have, and I'm upset about that. Um, we'd have more health industry whining, but over time, you get to learn how to tune that out. Uh, we'd have a reload uh, of the Medicaid program as the uh, last uh, ship standing, and uh, many states trying to expand that more aggressively than they already have uh, because of the loss of the uh, exchange bypass. Uh, and the early adopters in the bluest of the blue states would be hanging on because they'd still have their subsidies and they'd be happy with that world, although it creates some political tensions in terms of the regional distributions of the, the money in the pot. What would be the short-term effects if the Halbig plaintiffs lose? Uh, the pluses. I'm still looking. <laughs> um, what it means is back to the harder long-term politics, but, but, but a tougher climb. Uh, some minuses. Uh, like Groundhog Day, but longer, more years of Obamacare improvisation of, well, we'll make this one up as we go along in order to kind of uh, change the law as it goes. In fact, it would be an encouragement of the regulatory overreach we already saw with the IRS rule to simply do that in more areas rather than fewer areas. We'd have another entrenched entitlement we can't pay for to add on to the previous ones. And there would be some limited workarounds. The, uh, the landscape is not totally bleak. Uh, the Medicare program we have today is very different than the one that was launched 50 years ago. Things change, but our political system makes it harder to change them quickly when they're in the mass entitlement state. What would uh, some of the key institutional uh, players do to reposition and uh, respond? Uh, on the Hill, uh, there's limits, even on the Hill, to procrastination and polarization. Uh, it's hard to believe, but that's really true. When things are <laughs> really a big mess, they have to respond regardless of what they'd prefer to do to put it off. Uh, so you'd have some urgent transition fixes. Now, some of these might happen depending upon how the court order comes down, when it comes down, but also things to be done on the regulatory side. The idea that anybody is going to have their past subsidies grabbed out of their hands and say you have to pay them back. We're already almost on the honor, honor system in most of the subsidies already, including for insurers. Well, maybe we'll settle it about a year later if we can ever figure out what's going on. So the, 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 the premise that somehow people are going to be at risk for 
for what they've already relied upon, whether or not it was good legal guidance or not, is not going to be at risk there. There might even be a bit of a pause, some patches, where in return for some rules of debate uh, for what goes ahead in the future, that there are some fixes put together in the interim to get folks through uh, the next time. It may depend upon when a Supreme Court decision came down. Uh, if it's in between this current open season and the next one, you'd have time to adjust. If you're talking about it happening in 2016, there may be a little bit more of a, a cliffhanger nature to it. Uh, but what we're likely to see uh, is efforts to expand uh, and liberalize and create a bit of an alternative subsidy delivery system to think of other ways in which, with the roughly the same commitment of resources towards subsidizing coverage, it could be done through other less obnoxious or intensive means than the current Affordable Care Act provides. What we'd have a CEA for, though, in any case, would be the employer mandate and ultimately the individual mandates, which just never had either the need, the administrative uh, capability, or the political support to carry out on, on a long-term basis. And what will be very much in play will be the risk corridors. Not all of the other R's, the risk adjustment and the reinsurance, but the risk corridors are already vulnerable. They'll be more vulnerable in this environment, particularly in that interim period between 2015 and 2016. I mean, you would think that after you've already adjusted for health risk, after you've already taken out the high-cost claims for the individual market, and it turns out that the insurers are doing pretty well with the current markets, they don't need to tap the taxpayers in a non-budget neutral manner. That is not going to be a defensible political proposition before or after this exercise, but I think the risk corridors would be quickly at risk of going away. Um, what would happen in the states? We'd have some more backsliding in some of the red states, uh, more on the governor's side than uh, in the state legislator's side. Uh, we've seen that happen to some degree with Medicaid. Um, in, some states have also been trying to think about using the uh, lower end of the income eligible exchange enrollees as a way to uh, get the federal money without having to get their hands dirty on Medicaid. This would upset some of those arrangements, including uh, in Wisconsin, if a governor is reelected as to how he had set up his arrangements. Um, It'll be harder for state politicians on the uh, Republican side uh, to complain, but still get the money. Uh, they'll have to say, uh, hmm, we got to do something here, uh, which is an interesting uh, positive development in the longer term political sense, but about discomfort for those who are currently uh, saying it's all your fault. Uh, we didn't have much to do with it. We'd end up with some type of hybrid state exchanges. I think that as much as you may say the current boundary lines on what can or cannot qualify as a state exchange might be suggested uh, under this law, uh, the improvisational ability to suddenly say that that looks like a state exchange to me uh, should not be discounted. Uh, I think that it'll be much more fluid. And in fact, from the federal side, uh, in an involvement ministry, they'd be happy to call anything a state exchange if they can find a, a partly willing partner uh, to engage with them. Uh, we, but we'd also have some state pushback and we'd have some bargaining leverage on the state side where they could say, yes, I will consider doing an exchange. But unlike what you told us we had to do before, now we're really two parties at the bargaining table. What are you doing? to give us what we want in return for us playing ball with you. And that's a very different type of true partnership between the states and the federal government than the way in which the ACA unfolded. Now, some bluffs will be called, where folks who have previously said, if you just get the feds out of the way, we can fix our state health care markets. 
Well, those bluffs have to begin to be acted upon. Uh, and some two-sided finger pointing, but ultimately the finger should be pointed at everyone. And one factor that may be different in a few of the states, although don't underestimate the fact that you've still got, you know, up to 20 or more states still resisting a Medicaid expansion several years after it was supposed to occur in a quasi-voluntary system. Uh, that it's one thing to discount the Medicaid voters, uh, but it'll be a little harder to discount the uh, near poor, but uh, more likely to vote folks who'd be losing out on exchange subsidies. That's just the political calculation. What is the real positive behind all this, though, are not the details and some of the stretched uh, correlations seen as causation that Len likes to use. Uh, it's really what this means for our political systems, hygiene, and therapy. Uh, we might have a return to regular order, or regular disorder as the case may be, where we start finding out that it, you actually have to work this stuff out in the political system rather than take a quick bypass. And a mutual rendezvous for both sides with reality. Uh, if you will, the frozen ember of uh, March 2010 and before will begin to thaw and we'll get a reshuffling of the deck of cards and find out where we turn out on that. Think of it as kind of a... Uh, way to correct what's been done through the regulatory system, which what happened with the court system in Roe v. Wade, you have to work this stuff out on the ground in politics. And it turns out that you can find an accommodation nobody wants as their maximum preference, but they're willing to live with when they find out they can't get everything they want. There is some common ground on which all parties can agree, though. Uh, there's one thing that uh, both parties will always agree to in Washington, which is that when it comes to other people's money, it's time that we can find a way to pass it out. We may distribute it differently, but we'll continue to pass it out in a different set of arrangements. Thank you. Well, that was very optimistic, particularly that return to regular order idea. I'm not uh, sure we'd recognize it. Yeah, I don't know. What does that look like? Thank you, Tom. <laughs> thank you, Lori. Thank you, Lynn. And thank you, Bob, and all of you for, for being here. I have two points that, uh, that, that I want to make. One is that there, there are really two ways of understanding the potential disruption involved or surrounding with or in surrounding this issue. The second point is that no matter whose side you take, you know, or, or no matter how you look at the potential disruption, uh, uh, the potential for disruption gets worse over time. So the government says that, uh, says that under the plaintiff's interpretation of the, the, the statute, there'd be tremendous disruption. And the plaintiffs say, the only thing, the, the plaintiffs actually agree. The plaintiff's interpretation says, yes, that's, that's true, as, as, Bob, uh, as Bob detailed for us. The, the, the plaintiffs say, yes, there would be tremendous disruption if the courts ruled for the plaintiffs in these cases. The, but the plaintiff's interpretation also suggests that the only thing that could be worse than that is if we stuck with the government's interpretation, which has caused much more disruption. In fact, the, the plaintiffs would say that these lawsuits don't create any disruption at all. The purpose of these lawsuits is to end the massive economic and political disruption that uh, has been caused by the president's decision to ignore the clear statutory language that he swore to uphold. And uh, and. And so let's dive right into those two narratives explaining these legal challenges. Again, uh, we're talking about uh, Pruitt v. Burwell, Halbig v. Burwell, King v. Burwell, and Indiana v. IRS. The government's narrative is this. We are implementing the law as Congress intended, and these pesky plaintiffs over here, they're coming and trying to gut the law. They're trying to, their interpretation would cause premiums, uh, and if they did that, by blocking an essential piece of the law, that would cause premiums to double for 7 million people according to one amicus brief. Now, it's, it's important to recognize that when you get rid of a subsidy, that doesn't increase the cost of the health insurance. 
because the subsidy doesn't reduce the cost. The subsidy just shifts that cost from the premium payer to the taxpayer. So really what's happening here is the premium payer would be exposed to the full cost. As Tom mentioned, there'd be more transparency involved if we got rid of these subsidies. But uh, the government says with, with some, uh, uh, and there's merit to this, premiums would double for, or the amount that people are paying out of pocket for their premiums would double for some people. For some people, it would go up sevenfold uh, maybe about 4 million people could see an average increase uh, like that or, or increases like that. And as Bob said, insurance markets could collapse in two-thirds of the country. In fact, the law itself could collapse because Congress isn't likely to tolerate that. Just sit there and, and do nothing. But that's the, the framework that the media have adopted when reporting on these lawsuits. It's the government's narrative. And so they frame the discussion in the same terms. If these lawsuits prevail, then there, will, then there will be this disruption. But there are two sides in this litigation. The plaintiffs have another narrative, and it's actually much more ominous. The plaintiffs say that the Obama administration is not implementing the law as Congress intended. The plaintiffs maintain that these lawsuits are not challenges to the PPACA or Obamacare at all. The plaintiffs are in court because, they argue, the law says one thing, the president is doing something else, and that something else is hurting the plaintiffs and they want him to stop. They argue that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act clearly and unambiguously allows the president to implement its major taxing and spending provisions only in states that agree to implement the law by establishing a health insurance exchange. Now, it's a mouthful. It's just one side of the story. I think it's important to note here, however, that two of the three standing judicial opinions in these cases, two of the three standing judicial opinions in these cases side with the plaintiffs. They have adopted the plaintiffs' interpretation that the statute is clear and unambiguous and the president is violating it. And the third opinion actually says, yeah, there's a lot of, there's, there's merit in what they're saying, even though that ruling, uh, uh, cited, that uh, opinion cited with the government. And interestingly, one more, uh, one more piece of, 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 uh, of history here is that the Treasury and IRS employees who are charged with implementing this part of the law actually confessed to congressional investigators that at the time they were developing this regulation, they knew that the statute didn't give them the authority to implement these taxes and these subsidies in uh, states with federal exchanges, but they did it anyway. The president uh, and his administration have nevertheless been implementing those taxes and outlays in the 36 states that did not establish exchanges. Those disputed taxes fall on the plaintiffs, plus about 57 million other uh, Americans are subject to those to those uh, to those penalties, and the plaintiffs are suing to stop what they think are unauthorized taxes and the subsidies that are connected to them. The the under the plaintiffs' interpretation, the nature of the, this litigation is completely different from what the government says. They're not suing to stop the law; they are su they are suing to stop the president from violating it. As a federal judge in Oklahoma. Uh, wrote when he ruled for the plaintiffs in Pruitt v. Burwell, he was not overruling or overturning or gutting the PPACA, but upholding it. So no matter, and, and no matter what you think of Obamacare, it is far preferable, Obamacare itself is far preferable to a system where the president can tax disfavored groups and subsidize favored groups without congressional authorization. So which perspective, which narrative you adopt has a big impact on how you look at and, and categorize the disruption involved. That the Obama administration is correct, that the law authorizes these taxes and spending in the 36 states with federal exchanges, then the potential disruption involved here is only the destruction of the insurance, the individual insurance markets in two-thirds of the country. 
Only. That's all. That's all that's involved. I say only because if the plaintiffs are correct, the distortion is far, far greater. Those taxes, if the plaintiffs are correct, the law does not authorize those taxes and subsidies. Those taxes and subsidies never should have happened. That money never should have gone out the door because they're forbidden by federal law. And under this interpretation, every way that those taxes and those subsidies and the anticipation of the availability of those taxes and subsidies prior to when, prior to when they took effect in January of 2014 has changed our world uh, and is a disruption compared to uh, what should have happened if the government had followed the law. Those, disru those disruptions have been widespread and they have been deep. They have disrupted the healthcare sector. They've disrupted the, the democratic process in Congress and the states, including legislative votes and possibly even elections. And they threaten to disrupt the judicial process as well. So let's talk about the economic impact for a second. If the law does not authorize those taxes and subsidies in those 36 states, then ever since the administration announced its intention to offer them in states with federal exchange rates, way back in 2011, insurers have been more enthusiastic about participating in the law's exchanges than they would have been otherwise, than they would have been if the president had followed the law. In 2013, more insurers chose to participate in exchanges and more are participating now than if the administration had followed the law. Employers have reconfigured their health benefits, eliminated jobs, cut hours for thousands, perhaps millions of employees, including teaching assistants, bus drivers, school cafeteria workers, and so forth, to comply with a mandate from which they are by law exempt. So some people's incomes have suffered as a result of, uh, of the president's decision not to follow the law. Millions of Americans are already paying penalties or have purchased coverage to comply with an individual mandate from which they are by law exempt. Four to seven million Americans agreed to enroll in exchange coverage with the promise of subsidies that the government had no authority to offer them, subsidies that could vanish with the single court ruling or at the whim of the next president, whoever he or she may be. The also, uh, another economic distortion is that the federal debt has risen above the level authorized by law, imposing an unauthorized tax burden on current and future generations. That's just the economic impact. What's more troubling to me is the political impact of these taxes, these unauthorized taxes and subsidies and the anticipation thereof. Again, if the law does not authorize those taxes and subsidies in federal, states with federal exchanges, then the Obama administration's decision to offer them there has disrupted the democratic process as well. If the administration had stuck to the statute and let it be known that states, essentially letting it be known that states could effectively block the exchange subsidies, the employer mandate, and to a large extent the individual mandate just by refusing to create an exchange, then as early as 2011, the debate over exchange implementation would have been all about those things and fueled by opposition to two of those things, opposition to the individual mandate and the employer mandate. Republicans who, who rode opposition to Obamacare to office in 2010 would have made that a cause. Uh, you'll remember that a lot of governors, uh, uh, governorships and legislative chambers changed hands. They may have been even more vigorous in their opposition uh, to exchanges. We may have had more than 36 states refusing to establish exchanges. It would be uh, the fact that resistance in the states could block parts of the law could have been would have been an issue in the off-year elections in 2011 and con congressional and presidential elections in 2012. They could have launched opponents could have lost, launched grassroots campaigns that said block the mandate, say no to an exchange. Voters would have behaved differently. Remember how Congress held dozens of votes trying to repeal Obamacare? Well, well, those votes may not have succeeded, 
but the votes cast by individual members may have changed if it were revealed that this law is actually very vulnerable to state resistance and much less workable than the Obama administration had been pretending. It could have affected congressional races as a result. It could have uh, uh, even affected uh, the presidential election, both in terms of how many Republicans decided to enter the race and the ultimate outcome of the presidential election. If this law was exposed to be less workable than the president had, pretending it, had, had been pretending it was. And we could have had a congressional debate and a fix in 2013 before there was any disruption, before anyone had to lose any subsidy, before the money even went out the door, before there was any threat to insurance markets collapsing. But we'll never know, never know what would have happened because the Obama administration denied states the ability to veto the law's unpopular employer and individual mandates and effectively disenfranchised voters uh, who, who voted in state elections out of opposition uh, to this law. Again, in addition, Americans voted in 2012, Americans voted in 2012 as if there were not a gaping hole in this law that would expose its full cost and force Congress to reopen it. And the IRS rule is still influencing the 2014 congressional races being held next week because candidates decided whether to run this year and voters will vote this year as if that gaping hole in this law does not exist, as if the law that Congress enacted were more popular and successful than it actually is. So had the administration followed the law, the fact that 36 states exercised those vetoes would have led to change, probably would have led to changes in the law and possibly changes in Congress. And, and the fact that they didn't is a much greater form of uh, disruption than the, what is threatened, uh, than, than the, what, could possibly happen to the individual markets in those 36 states uh, if, if the plaintiffs in these lawsuits prevail, because that also is a result of the president's uh, decision to, uh, uh, to ignore the clear text of the statute. Finally, uh, handing out and making these uh, subsidies available or making four to seven million people dependent on these subsidies also makes it less likely that judges will enforce the clear language of the law, because as uh, 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 an attorney named Ian Milheiser at the uh, uh, Center for American Progress noted, judges are much less likely to, uh, w to rule for the plaintiffs in these cases if it means taking subsidies away from people. Judges are human beings. They wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to do that. And one of the reasons, and Milheiser almost, uh, almost came out and said that one of the reasons that the uh, administration and its supporters are pursuing a, a, a strategy of delay in these cases is because they're hoping that that effect will influence the court's decision. That, another, put another way, they're hoping that that will prejudice the courts, which is how uh, this, the IRS rule could, is also or could potentially disrupt the judiciary. So no matter who, which side you believe, all uh, the potential for disruption grows over time. If you believe the government's narrative, then if the courts take, uh, the longer the courts take to resolve these cases, the more potential disruption because the more people will become more, more people will become more dependent on these subsidies. If you believe the plaintiff's narrative, then uh, delay means the federal, the federal government will continue to, ta to tax and borrow and spend billions of dollars that Congress never authorized. Those subsidies will continue to make millions of people dependent on, uh, uh, or, or the IRS rule will continue to make millions of people dependent on subsidies that could disappear with one court ruling, or again, if the next president just feels like uh, making them disappear. And those taxes will continue to suppress workers' incomes and em employers' ability to hire. So no matter which side you believe here, 
If you want to reduce the potential disruption involved in the IRS rule or these, these lawsuits, you want a quick, quick resolution of these cases. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to go to questions here in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to uh, establish doom and gloom, chaos, catastrophe on this side of the table in the event of a how big victory, right? Well, there's one caveat to that, okay? I honestly believe that if how big is, carries the day, then there will be, uh, as, as Tom said, there will be much more pressure on the near poor to actually vote. And that may be enough to swing some elections in certain states. And again, those, those you know, 12, 15 states that are doing fine, thank you very much, they're going to continue to do fine. But it's not complete doom and gloom. It would be a sad day, but, you know. So in the, in the Medicaid model, then, you would still have these? Well, the exchanges would be operational where the states are operational. And by the way, you know, in six months, the rest of them could become so. And on this side of the table, a how big victory not so bad, really. Things would continue along. We'd just renegotiate. I would say that it would be bad, but it would be much better than what we've got right now. For people. Yes, because what we've got right now is we've got a president, uh, an administration that thinks that it can tax and borrow and spend without congressional authorization. And so there will be people who, who, who desperately need these subsidies and will lose these subsidies. But my response to, to, to that scenario is... Is there anyone, and I'll ask this question to everyone on the panel, is there anyone who thinks that if those, assuming those subsidies, if those subsidies are not authorized by statute, if Congress never authorized them, should those people continue to get those subsidies? Bob, Len, Tom. I think we tend to underestimate the craveness of desperate politicians who will find <laughs> a way to stay in office. But that supports my theory that people would vote in a different way than they have voted or non-voted before. But we'll also right. do it differently. People are shocked. I mean, yeah. I want to hear how we get. You, you guys, got it. Guys, you guys, you guys, don't guys, get to guys. set the way back machine all the way back. Could you guys use Would the you mics? Set it back somewhat. Microphone. Sorry. I I'd actually like to ask a question, of Michael, uh, listening to his remarks, which which I found helpful. Um, <clears throat> the concern I have, is, and has always had, is, and I think most of the audience know, I'm a pretty big Obamacare critic. I'm not. A, I'm not in the fan club. Um, the way you need to fix Obamacare is the Republicans need to win two elections. And we need to have sort of regular order. By the time we get to 2017, we'll know whether Len's right or I'm right about where Obamacare is. And if I'm right about Obamacare not working very well, that'll become crystal clear, and there will be an imperative to change it. after The, the 2016 elections will be taking place at the time people see the 2017 rates, which are the first time this thing stands on its own, all right? So you need, I think you need to go through the congressional process that, you know, that there are, there are proposals conservatives made like the, like the 2017 proposals and so forth. And, and if you fix it through the political process, it will be fixed in a way that you have a soft landing. In other words, they'll, they'll get rid of the stuff that doesn't work. They'll change to the, to the new way of doing things and people won't get screwed. All right. If this, if Helbig hits, you're just going to have blood in the streets. And what the Democrats are going to, and, and instead of uh, we're going to have this kumbaya moment like we all live in Colorado, what's going to happen is that the Democrats are going to say these mean-spirited Republicans, and they'll call it mean-spirited Republicans because, because that's, that, you know, two attorneys general are here today, and I think they're Republicans. Uh, they couldn't change this law the right way, so they tried to get it through the courts. And, and, and the other side of it will be, and this is the question I want to ask Michael, is... 
the other side will say, well, wait a second, this thing was deeply flawed. It was, it, 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 we were going to do more damage if we continued with it in all 50 states, and therefore we needed to bring the suit. Michael, what I just heard you say is that this suit is about getting Obamacare. No, actually. Uh, no, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I heard you say. No, no. In fact, it's about upholding Obamacare is what I said. As bad as Obamacare we is. Need to this is the way we need to change Obamacare because it's, it's bad in all 50 states. And, and as, no, uh, no, no. As bad as Obamacare is, what we have right now is much worse. Yeah, because well, what we have right now is not Obamacare. So this, so this is about getting Obamacare. That's what I heard you say. Um, I, I don't know how else to, to, to explain it. Well, let, maybe, maybe You're removing the political distortions that mutated <laughs> Obamacare. Well, sure, sure. So, so it's no secret that uh, I've, I oppose this law and have and persuaded, uh, tried to you know, persuade states not to implement the law. And I was doing that because I, I think that this law is on balance harmful for, for patients and for workers and, and, and uh, the economy and so forth. But when the IRS issued its final rule saying that it would offer tax credits and cost-sharing subsidies and impose and if and uh, in effect impose the employer mandate and the individual mandate where the statute did not authorize it to do so, this stopped being about Obamacare and started being about something much much bigger, which is the rule of law, and whether the president, as I said, can tax and borrow and spend without congressional authorization. It just happens to be about a healthcare issue, which is why the healthcare guy is here and we've got some other healthcare guys on the panel. So uh, because and 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 so 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 the irony here is that the people who are suing the federal government now are actually they're, they're all pretty much I would guess all of them are opponents of this law, but they have more respect for Obamacare than the president himself does because he thinks that he can uh as I said, tax and borrow and spend money that that statute does not authorize him to tax and borrow and spend. Okay, let's let the audience ask some questions. Um, uh, so we're going to raise hands and wait for a microphone and please announce your name and affiliation. Over here. Thank you. I'm Robert Book, Health Systems Innovation Network. Uh, maybe you should distinguish, just to help you out with the vocabulary, maybe you should distinguish between Obamacare, which is what is ever the Obama administration implements, and the ACA, which is what the statute actually says. So you could say that you're suing to stop Obamacare and implement the ACA. <laughs> but uh, having made that vocabulary suggestion, I'll get to my question. We have a, if, if you actually read the statute, which some of us have actually done, it seems pretty clear that how big plaintiffs are correct, and the statute says subsidies and penalties over here and not over there. And the administration has said, we don't think that's fair, so we're going to do something different. If the Supreme Court comes and says, yes, you have to implement the statute, what's, the, what's to stop the administration from saying, okay, the Supreme Court made its decision, but that's not fair, so here's what we're going to do. And potentially remove the issue of standing by saying, all right, we're not going to implement the taxes and penalties in those states, but we'll still give people the subsidies. And yes, they're not authorized by law, and yes, the Supreme Court said you can't do it, but we know better, and it's not, And this is, this is really what it's supposed to be, so we're just going to go ahead and do it. How do we know that's not going to happen? Anyone like 40% approval rating on its way to 25, that's how. The reason the president's been able to get away with 
the, the ways that he has unilaterally rewritten this law, and there are several. There's delaying the employer mandate. There are all the waivers to the mandates uh, a few years ago. There are the unauthorized subsidies to members of Congress. There's defining Congress as a small business for purpose of getting it into a shop, its employees into a shop exchange. Um, the reason he's allowed to get away with all of these things is twofold. One, generally no one can establish standing to challenge him in court. And two, there are enough members of his own party in Congress who will support these moves that Congress can't do anything to rein him in. Uh, and as Tom said, if his approval rating plummets even further, then th that second dynamic will change. And and it's because there are identifiable plaintiffs, identifiable uh, people with identifiable injuries uh, under the IRS rule that the, that the Hallbeg, et cetera, plaintiffs have been able to challenge this revision of the law in court. Well, right. So they say so they lose their standing. But then again, uh, that would so so the only uh, constraint there would be political. Congress would have to do something, and it, and the question becomes how much will Congress put up with? How, well, the question becomes how much will Congress put up with from this president? And so far, it seems like quite a lot. So I can't say that Congress wouldn't let him get away with doing that too. And in fact, two institutional bodies arrayed against him rather than one would be the net effect of that move, in addition to the change in public opinion. Yes, you can get away with a lot of nonsense, and a lot of nonsense has been gotten away with. There are boundary lines on this. Nixon discovered that, among others, okay? Which raises my point, which is it seems to me what Michael really wants and what he's trying to argue for, I'll put it that way, the argument to me leads me to the conclusion that the real goal here is to impeach Obama. Godspeed. You know, go ahead. I, I have no problem with that. What I what I have a problem with is the continued assertion that the only interpretation of the ACA is the interpretation that was reached by the majority of the D.C. Circuit. To me, the 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 King logic down there in Richmond, God love them, is pretty clear. There's two ways to look at this. Either the statute's clear or it's not. If the statute's not clear, you use the Chevron test. And the Chevron test leads you to exactly where the Fourth Circuit ended up, which was this thing's ambiguous. When it's ambiguous, you give the, uh, the executive authority to interpret within the confines. If their interpretation is within the confines of that ambiguity, we're done here because we're not going to re-legislate. That is the interpretation that is the alternative interpretation working its way through the court. I don't know which way the Supreme Court's going to rule, but to me that's almost a separate question to what the Obama administration is trying to implement, which m may skirt the level of, of you know, what y'all what would consider impeachable. I don't know. I, again, I leave that to higher, higher minds. What I'm worried about is health policy. And what I know is that when Congress passed this law, there was no question in anybody's mind who was on the committees that wrote it that they intended to deny the subsidies to the people in the people of the United States. Whether the feds or the states did Medicaid. The same is true of Medicaid. And everyone agrees that that's a conditional program. Michael, I'm trying to make a point here. And the point here is if you'd ask Max Baucus or anybody else on March 11th, if this was an issue, they would say, what are you talking about? Of course we meant it to go. And yes, what you're talking about really, and what I love about the way you're going to make this case if hell big wins, is you're going to basically say that the president's misinterpreting the law which is essentially an argument about a typo. I mean, Max Baucus would have fixed this if they'd have had a conference, and that would have been that. So I just, I just don't think 
That's the issue. I think the issue is you want to impeach the guy. Okay, fine. Let's let's talk about oh, uh, you know implementing health reform. Then we're talking about subsidies in all parts of the United States. Does anyone else have a question? Yes, sir. Okay, so we're like four and a half hours into this, <laughs> and nobody has said the word Massachusetts yet. And isn't the real problem that they put forth a law in Massachusetts and they just thought they could pick it up and jam it down the throats of the other 50 states? Isn't that the real problem that we have right here? No. 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 The, real, the real problem is that a slight majority in Congress supported the logic of the Massachusetts law. There, there are differences in the laws. And a slight minority opposed it quite vehemently. And the real problem is that when um, the inability to agree in the Finance Committee on any kind of bipartisan uh, nature of the conversation, those worlds split, and we got out of regular order, and we've been in this mess ever since. That's the real problem. We have a fundamental disagreement about whether the federal government should be strong enough to grant all its people access to health care. And we should settle that, in my opinion, in the, pol- in the political sphere. But we're Which stuck, we'll do right after the court decision the court. comes actually, down. Actually, or, or that we already did. And this, I, I want to return to a, a, a point that Bob made, which is that under the, under the uh, you know, Bob, you, you, you adopted the government's narrative, which is, you know, we should be uh, fighting this out in the political sphere, not in, in, in the courts. Uh, actually, the plaintiffs agree. They f- believe we already have fought this out in the political sphere. And because the statute gives states the power to block two legs of the three-legged stool, the American people have already rendered their judgment on this law. So the question I thought about beginning my remarks with was, what if the American people defeated this law, but the president implemented it anyway? That's what's happening here. The president is is trying to achieve by executive fiat what he was not able to achieve through the political process. He was not able to get through uh, uh, Congress any bill except one that gave states the power to block two legs of the three-legged stool. You say two legs, you mean Medicaid? I mean, no, two legs of the three-legged stool, the, 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 the regulatory scheme for the private insurance market, this, the three legs of the stool are the pre-existing condition provisions, the individual mandate, and the subsidies. Okay. States can knock out both the, uh, the mandate, by and large, and the, subs- and the subsidies completely. And then they were not able to get states to go along with that. And if they had followed the law, we've, as I said, we would have had a much different debate. There would have been a lot of defections on the Democratic side from this law because it would be revealed to be more costly and less workable than the president has been pretending that it was. You know, he's pretending he passed a bill that he couldn't get through Congress. And as I say, trying to achieve by fiat what he could not achieve through the, through the political process. So that's what the plaintiffs are actually trying to do is they're trying to get us to have that debate that we should have had years ago when there wouldn't have been any dislocation, but now there will be, and the fault for that for that lies with the administration. Michael, I think, is, I, think, I think the big problem here is that Halbig proves, if we didn't know it already, that politics and constitutional law don't mix. Mm. I mean, you've got, you've well, got, not you've a got constitutional legitimate issue. constitutional law issues here and, and rule of law issues here. There's no doubt about that. The politics of this, if this goes through, are just devastating. And, and there is a point when I think, you know, you have to, you have to sit back and say, what if we win? <laughs> then what? 
That's what I say. Bring it on. Well, I, I want to ask a question to Michael. Do you agree with Len's assertion that this is essentially a, a typo, that, there, that Congress did not intend and never discussed the Two possibility? Things. Wait, because I was there, and I actually agree with Len, that they never contemplated the idea that the subsidies would not be available to everyone. It was well, never discussed. It was never discussed. It doesn't mean it was never contemplated or there's no evidence of it being discussed except for the one that, that I mentioned. But two, a couple things about that. The first is uh, people like to say that this was a drafting error. The government has never argued that in court. And there's a reason why the government has never argued it in court because it's not credible. The statute, the tax credit eligibility rules in the statute are very clear. Jonathan Adler walked through them in the last panel. They say that the plans that are eligible for tax credits, the people who are eligible for tax credits, the premiums that are used to calculate the tax credits, the rating area in which you'll find all these things, all of them happen through an exchange established by the state. Never mentions federal exchanges, nothing unclear about it. In fact, if you, if you, if you get a, uh, a proponent of the government's position to voice an opinion on just the tax credit eligibility rules, which they're very loath to do, they'll say, yeah, those, those, those are clear. So, when you have multiple uses of that phrase, it's not a typo. It's not a drafting error. Oh, and inserted at multiple stages in the legislative process, that's not a typo or a drafting error. Um, as far as whether anyone uh, discussed this or what Congress's intent was, the whole idea that Congress intended for this statute, the PPACA, to authorize tax credits in federal exchanges is a fabrication. You made it up. And why do I say that? Because there's no evidence of it whatsoever. None in the legislative history, none in the statute, none in any of your excellent reporting on this law, Lori. Because no, I've read every article you wrote on, uh, uh, about the implementation of this law and a lot of other uh, people. Uh, uh, Robert Pear is here and, and read all of his. No one touched on this. It never came up. The only time it ever did come up, the question, the specific question of what would happen under the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act if states did not establish exchanges was answered, uh, or the only time it did come up was when a former Supreme Court of Texas justice named Lloyd Doggett, who's now a member of Congress, a very left-leaning member of Congress in a very conservative state, said, wait, I don't like that. We don't, uh, he and 10 of his colleagues from Texas said, we don't like the Senate passed PPACA because if states don't implement it, then our residents won't see any benefit. They categorically said there will be no benefit to states if, uh, uh, to the intended beneficiaries of exchanges if states don't implement them. And they acknowledged that there would be a federal exchange. So there's absolutely nothing in the legislative history to support the claim that Congress intended for this law to do what the administration is doing. That's a fabrication. And the only piece of legislative history that speaks directly to this question supports the plaintiffs. If you have any evidence to support what you're saying, I'm interested to hear it, but post enactment statements by members of Congress, the same members of Congress who said, if you like your health plan, you can keep it, are not really educational. They don't really tell us anything about what Congress really intended. And there's a reason why judges ignore or don't pay any attention to those post hoc statements. Microphone in the back, please. Gentleman in the red tie. Uh, Charles William, an internist from St. Louis, Missouri, spent a career taking great care of patients one time, one one person at a time. Built a medical group, built a Medicare Advantage health plan, all to to better 
enable myself to do that. It's clear to me, I followed this closely in its formation, that given the Cornhusker kickback and the Louisiana Purchase, that there's no way that you would have gotten even all of those Democratic states to come along if it weren't for the idea that it would be implemented by the states. That's what I heard as a, as a citizen, interested citizen. Uh, let me, it's interesting to hear you, you gentlemen debate whether this ought to be settled in the courts or at the Fed. Nuts to that, we're solving the problem in the market already. It's been being solved in the market already. And, and um, I, hate for, I hate to give it any credit because it's stimulating that. Uh, concierge medicine, uh, Oklahoma, Service Center of Oklahoma, uh, Medicare Advantage, et cetera. So it will be, we, will, we will be fine if they throw hell, if hell big wins and they throw this thing out. The longer we can keep you, you guys in Washington in check doing nothing, we can solve the problem. Thank you. Okay, we had another question. Eyal Moses, no affiliation. One thing it looks to me like all the panelists agree on is that in the 16 states that have established state exchanges, there's going to be very little impact if Halbig wins. Now, in the other 34 states, in the short run, certainly the impact will be very disruptive. In the longer run, supporters of Obamacare think the impact will be very negative. Opponents of Obamacare uh, think it, it will be positive. It, there may be more room for the sort of, uh, of, uh, um, for the sort of insurance policies that have uh, been discontinued because of Obamacare. They might come up again. Uh, we may see uh, unemployment drop because of uh, once it becomes clear that the employer mandate no longer applies, while it will probably remain higher in the other 16 states. But the point is, we will see the difference between the 16 states and the 34, and, there, and whichever of them does better, there will be great political pressure on the other side to change what they're doing. So I would think that, that supporters of Obamacare would be eager for Halbig to win in order so to have the opportunity to demonstrate, for the facts to demonstrate that Obamacare is in fact improving things. As a logical matter, you are correct. And I do know people who do support the law who are exactly where you are. The, the difficulty is the people who support Obamacare tend to also be Democrats by nature. And Democrats by nature don't like to think about those people who drive taxi cabs, cut your hair and do all those things having something taken away from them. And they're quite worried, frankly, more more tactically, about the response of the insurance industry if they get burned in this way. They, they went along, got burned. Okay, what do we do now? Yes, Bob's right. Maybe they won't lose financially in year one. But they hate gearing up for a whole new market and having that market be taken away. So we worry about the insurance industry's response to the debacle, which would drive voters to our side. So that, that's our dilemma. Yeah, I mean, it, it's long term, the, de, the debacle will create uh, a, a different system. Yeah. It's, it's the short term. Of course, the state of Texas will figure this out. How many years will it take? That's, and and what, happens, what happens to the people in the short term? And what are the political consequences in the short term? So, and what are the political consequences to the long term objectives? 
if you, if, you, if you have 8 million people lose their insurance in July 1st, 2015, the day after the Supreme Court ruling, you aren't going to elect a Republican dog catcher, much less president. And what does that do? Of course, Texas will figure this out. What happens in the, in the medium term or the short term? Well, I doubt, I doubt it's going to be as simple as Halbig wins, Democrats win. And that's because uh, a Halbig victory would continue the narrative that most people already adopted this law is unworkable. And you would add to that narrative, wait a second, you mean we can block the employer mandate in our state? Wait, we can block the individual mandate in our state? And what, the president was violating the law on a massive scale? Is that going to lead to a, a, a flood of Democratic votes? I'm not so sure. Take the bet. Over here. You're not worried. Thank you. My name is Hermes. I'm just trying to figure out, uh, can you explain to me how uh, the agencies or the individuals disrupt the, the democratic process or the economic process? How this, what is the mechanism, how, it, how, how this happens? Thank you. I'm sorry, how, how individuals have agencies, disrupted? How the agencies, how the agencies or the individuals or the law itself uh, proceed to disruption, economical or... I think that uh, I think the answer is, or at least my answer is, that if the president had been following the law and let it be known that the subsidies that the law authorizes for exchanges are only available through an exchange established by the state, and that the penalties that those subsidies trigger against employers under the employer mandate and against individuals under the individual mandate would also disappear if a state did not establish an exchange, then we would have had a very different debate over this law for the past four years. The law would, the law would have been revealed to be more costly. As states refuse to establish exchanges, that, you know, the, uh, the, the, the insurance companies would be talking about what that would do to the premiums. It would expose the premiums. It would be much higher. Some insurers wouldn't participate. The law would not have enjoyed the stellar popularity ratings that it has had for the past four years if the president had been following law. And so, and so by keeping the, the law's uh, popularity artificially high, and, and really it's, it wasn't very high to begin with, but uh, it wasn't very high even after he did that, I should say. That's what's disrupted the political process. And then there are also the economic disruptions that I talked about. Let, let's let Grace Bernie speak. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> with this Grace Marie Turner, Galen Institute, with all due respect to my good friend, Len Nichols, and to your excellent work, um, Mr. Lozuski. It, this is now going to be a political dilemma, and I hear you making sort of a straight-line projection, saying that the states are going to have to adjust to the law as it would current, it would be interpreted if Halbig were to win. But because it's a political process, those Republicans that don't want to lose their seats would quickly say, oh my goodness, we need to throw out a safety net to make sure that millions of people don't lose their health insurance. So I think there would quickly be legislation to make sure people don't lose their health insurance. 
probably structured in a different way, as as both Michael and Tom said. But I just hear you sort of still saying we're going to stay in this box, not realizing this is a very fluid political process, and politicians no, would respond to protect that's, people. That's, that's, that I was exact. I was not saying that. Um, my 12 minutes was confined to what happens the day Helbig is affirmed, okay? And you'll note that one of the last slides I had up there was those states with hundreds of thousands of people who would lose their insurance on that day. And then I had Tim Joe slide up basically saying, here's the process the states would have to go through. And then I made the point that it would not take days to fix that. It would minimally take months to fix that. If, if, if the Supreme Court would rule probably in June, they always do this, the big cases, you know, June, all right. And uh, so you going home. And, and the, there are no state legislatures in session. The governor has to call them into session. The governor has to convince them to do this, which I think would be a lot easier to do in Pennsylvania and Ohio and New Jersey and the states that took Medicaid because they know what they would have to do. And then you'd have states like Texas who would probably just be defiant because that's the way they've acted so far. All right. So what you would have and, and what I think you're missing here is, is the day this ruling came down. And the, and the headlines in the newspapers on July 1 was, we've got a crisis. We've got a mess. This is terrible. And, and, and the best that Republicans could do would be, to, would be to go into defensive mode in some of these red states or quasi-red states and fix it as quick as they could because they, they've got this, this terrible political noose around their neck that was created by all of this. That is, that is not a positive development. That is not a wonderful thing. It's a god-awful mess, and they frickin' did it. And, and, and half of them are going to fix it, and half of them aren't going to fix it, and you've got one heck of a, yeah, you got one heck of a burden. Yeah, but the, the quick next fix day, is just Congress have the states. could act they, huh? and give them a different authority to basically say, we're going to Who's allow Who's going to give them a different authority? Congress to say for the next Oh, the six Congress. Months. The ah, Congress. The and Congress. the House of Representatives. That, See, here's, the here's the thing. But, but Grace Marie has Grace a point. Marie. Grace Marie has but, a point here. The high-risk pool idea is not controversial. Republicans wait, wait, like wait, 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 wait. We're talking, we're talking about political movement. Grace Marie, let me say this. If you were in the House and I was in the House, we would have a chance. We're not. So what's going to happen is that the people who wanted to kill Obamacare the whole time are going to say, hey, we finally got a stake in the vampire's heart. We're not driving in now. We got to kill it. And the other ones are going to say, oh, my God, I lost 600,000 covered lives. I've got to implement Obamacare by creating a state exchange. That's a, a dilemma. You'd have a bunch <laughs> of wonderful speeches, and they'd all be looking at the 2016 presidential election, and Democrats would think they have the Republicans exactly where they want them. They just screwed 8 million people, and they would not let them out of that box. So I don't know where you think that in 15 minutes the, the, this town is going to fix something this big and complicated when it took us 10 years it to get what we've got. It just says we're going to perhaps if you get a subsidy now, you can continue to get it. And we'll come back to this and we'll work on it for the next six months and fix this. They want to provide subsidies, not, not this way. Or perhaps you guys can meet over lunch and have this conversation <laughs> because we are out of time, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.